Well, I was at a, a family reunion yesterday, and at that same uh, extended reunion, probably 14, 15 years ago, I had a relative come up to me, and uh, he kind of said in a low voice, he said, uh, my mother's uh, not very happy with it. And I clearly that wasn't tracking with him. I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, oh, I thought you knew. He said, uh, I came out as gay. And um, turns out he was married, had uh, several children, and he had moved to a basement room, was living there, until he could figure out how he was going to launch out on his new life as a, as a gay man. <clears throat> and my guess is that today... Uh, maybe unlike 15, 20 years ago today, most everybody here knows someone who uh, says they struggle with same-sex attraction or maybe doesn't struggle with it, just indulges in it. Uh, might be, it might be a child or brother or sister. It might be a friend from college. Um, might be a parent. Uh, today's a different day than it was uh, 20 years ago. And you might be surprised to find that you even sit beside someone at church who struggles with same-sex attraction. Statistically, um, we would probably have 25 to 30 people here in this church if we follow the proportion of the culture. I've been watching the uh, advance of the gay activist movement in my lifetime. Uh, actually, this coming week, or this week, is uh, what's considered kind of the anniversary of that uh, launch of that movement. Stonewall riots, Greenwich Village, uh, New York City, um, 1969. Police were there to uh, roust some drag queens and gay people at a Stonewall Inn bar. And that led to some pushback that turned into protests and riots over the next several, uh, actually six days. And a lot's happened since then. 1973, the American Psychiatric Association uh, removed homosexuality from the... um, its psychiatric Bible of mental disorders, the DSM-2 at that time. Um, But something significant happened in the 80s that really kind of, um, in some ways, um, not just galvanized, but changed the way the uh, homosexual activists were trying to um, make themselves um, uh, seen differently in the eyes of straight America. There was a book published, it was written by two gay men, entitled After the Ball, how America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the, 90, in the 90s. Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen were the um, authors of that book. And it set forth a six-point plan, uh, an agenda, if you will, for um, gay America to make um, homosexuality uh, re- much more acceptable and received by straight America. Basically, they were saying, we want to see um, straight America look at homosexuality and, and say... It's just another thing and a shrug of the shoulders. And that agenda has been eminently successful. Um, In my lifetime, I watched the plea for tolerance um, receive tolerance, by and large, by the culture. And the next next step was we want approval, and that, by and large, was received as well. Of course, um, kind of capped off in 2015 when the Supreme Court weighed in in the Oberg uh, fell decision and, and determined that the legislation that had been passed overwhelmingly by the United States Congress in 1996, uh, the um, DOMA Act, that marriage was exclusively between a man and a woman, was uh, thrown out by the courts, and now gay marriage was uh, this new thing. Now, the next step, 
So we went from we want tolerance to we want approval. Now we want religious endorsement. And I'm going to show you a slide here that gives some indication of how that effort is going. Um, by and large, <clears throat> this is a tracking of American religious American attitudes regarding same-sex relationships. Uh, over on the left is 2001. Over on the right is 2017. And you can see the different uh, colored lines represent different religious groups. Uh, by and large, uh, uh, mainline Protestants are all in. Uh, most Catholics are supportive of same-sex relationships. The two most resistant groups are white evangelicals and um, second least uh, most resistant group, uh, black African-American evangelicals. But even those, you can see the lines, uh, if you look to the right, the line is trending upward. Upward is as the larger and larger percentage of people say, not only should same-sex marriage or same-sex relationships be permitted in America, but we endorse them. Um, we are, um, approve of them. And we've been, watching the, um, we've been watching the slide, I'll call it the slide, of evangelical leaders, evangelical Christians, evangelical voices um, saying, uh, we no longer agree with what has 2000, for 2,000 years been the historic Christian position understanding what the Bible teaches on homosexuality, i.e. that it is a sin, that homosexual acts are sins. And just since the Oberfell, uh, Obergefell decision in 2015, uh, I'm going to give you five illustrations of key uh, evangelical leaders who have changed their minds on this, uh, starting with Eugene Peterson. Uh, if you have a copy of the Bible paraphrase, The Message, uh, Peterson is the author of that. He was a pastor for many, many years, written dozens and dozens of books, some of which I have on my shelf. He was interviewed last year by Jonathan Merritt, who uh, is a self-described gay Christian. And in the course of that conversation, he asked Peterson what he thinks about uh, same-sex uh, relationship people. And uh, he said, I don't think it's a right or wrong thing. And then when asked by Merritt if he would perform uh, a same-sex wedding, he said yes. Um, I won't tell you what happened in the wake of that. The blogosphere blew up, and he eventually backtracked on that. But I think the original interview reflected his um, actual beliefs. Uh, Jen and Brandon Hatmaker in 2016. Uh, Jen is a well-known women's blogger, speaker at women's conferences uh, all over the country. Her husband is a pastor at Austin New Church in Texas, and uh, they also went public with their conviction that same-sex relationships are uh, what they describe can be holy before God. Uh, Tony Campolo, most of you have probably heard of Tony uh, in 2015, also coming out in favor of um, same-sex relationships. Now, the last three illustration examples, including Tony's, I want you to note something. <clears throat> Tony said that his change of mind came from meeting sincere gay Christian couples saying that influenced me more than the Bible. More than the Bible. And I'm going to contend this morning that the trend that you saw in the uh, graph is a more of a Bible issue than a homosexual, homosexuality issue. Uh, next illustration is Rob Bell. Uh, again, many of you know of him. 2015, he's talking with Oprah. Uh, to whom he's now a spiritual mentor. 
and she's asking when the church is going to get on board with the um, endorsing same-sex relationships. And he said the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense against gay relationships. Bible issue. Ryan Meeks, pastor of a mega church outside of Seattle, um, Washington, about three years ago, his uh, worship director, a woman worship director, came to him and said, uh, I need to tell you that I'm dating, um, I forget her name, Amy, I think it was, a woman on the worship team. And she assumed that she was going to be fired at that point, and he said, no, he said, I'm, I'm so happy for you. And he went public with a growing conviction that he had the same relation, same-sex relationships were uh, approved by God. And they lost, uh, in a space of a year, they lost hundreds and hundreds of members. This is a church of about 3,500. They lost almost $3 million in uh, church uh, donations. But they have been reinventing themselves as a church in the days since. What's interesting is people who are still there or uh, have been trickling out in the last year or so say they notice that the Bible is being referenced less and less and Jesus is being mentioned less and less. And this is what Pastor Meek says. I don't care if the Bible says gay people suck. Excuse the language. It's his, not mine. He says the Bible is pro-slavery both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It doesn't have a very great view of women leading and teaching I have lots of things I disagree with about the Bible. We've decided the Bible fell from the sky, and now we've got to use it like a manual for how to run the earth, how to legislate morality, and that's not what it is. If we need to consult an ancient book to know what to do when a human being is in front of us, I think we're screwed already. We're going to talk about homosexuality this morning, and I I want to argue that what's taking place both in the culture and in the church is a Bible issue not primarily a homosexuality issue. And what we want to do this morning is listen to what the Bible does have to say about homosexuality and what the Bible also has to say to the people of God who aren't struggling with same-sex attraction and how they should th- we should think about um, people who do, how we should care for them, how we should interact with them, how we should speak to them, and how we should speak of them. So let's ask God for his help, but well, we're going to need it. Uh, Let's ask him for his help, and then we're going to dive in. Father God, thank you for um, being a father who loves us, uh, no matter how messed up we are or aren't, Um, no um, no matter how much we depart from you, there is a pursuing love. No matter how much we think of ourselves in pride, that you have a love that pursues us. No matter how much animosity we have toward other people who don't think like us, you you have a love that pursues us to to be a a person uh, who represents and reflects that love to a world that desperately needs to see it. Um, we, we We look at the panorama of the Church of Jesus Christ today, and we see all kinds of brokenness and things that are messed up. And it's easy for us to n- take note of the brokenness that is in someone else's life far more acutely and far more instinctively than we can see the brokenness in our own lives. And that is something that I know your spirit wants to address in my life and all of our lives this morning. Help us to hear well from you, hear well from your spirit. 
Um, I pray for folks that might be here this morning who's, who do uh, deal with same-sex attraction, that they, would, uh, that they would hear well from you and not from the enemy, but that they, will, they would also hear the, or sense the embrace of you that you extend to them, saying, I, I, I desire good things for you, and I offer hope for you in Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. I want to talk firstly about convictions that have no corroboration. Convictions that have no corroboration. And I'm talking this morning about the kinds of things that are being uh, taught and set forth by the, either the um, gay community or by those who are their advocates uh, inside or outside of the church. And if we go to the first book in the Bible, the first chapter of the first book, the first uh, verse of the first book, and the first sentence of the first book, it goes like this. In the beginning, God. And so by the time we get to the fourth word in the Bible, we are told what the Bible, who the Bible is all about. We are told who the Bible is for, ultimately. We're told about uh, whose agenda the Bible sets forth and whose glory is at stake. In the beginning, God. And that should shape and frame all that we think about when it comes to God, when it comes to his, uh, his glory, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to uh, the church's agenda. In the beginning, God. Now, I want to uh, talk about four things this morning that are often reflected as convictions by the gay community or by their supporters, beginning with love trumps everything else. Love trumps everything else. The Eastlake Community Church I just referenced has a, a little cliche that they, as part of, their, um, part of their mission statement, it says, life is a gift and love is the point. Life is a gift and love is the point. Now, there's... Uh, if you would define that certain ways, uh, you might be able to agree with it, but, but when it's out there hanging, you're not really sure whether or not you want to go along with that. A brother here in the church who was having a conversation with a, another friend in the last year goes to another church, and they were kind of catching up in each other's lives and finding out where they go to church now. And a brother here said he goes to Keystone Church, and he said, well, in the conversation, it, it, they somehow ended up, it was, what does your church teach regarding homosexuality and this brother said we'll uh, teach that uh, homosexual conduct is a is a sin that um, it's like any other sin but it's a sin that God says no to and this this other person got very concerned he got a grave look on his face he said I I have concern for you being in a church like that he said because it's all about love now, again, I'd, I'd want to probe that and say, what do you mean by it's? What's, what, what are you referring to? I think he was talking about Christianity. It's all about love. And, and the idea, because I've heard this um, argument frequently before, the idea is that uh, in any relationship, as long as a person loves somebody else, that's something we should endorse. Because after all, in the book of First John, it says that God is love. And so surely he would say, yes, I bless anything that has love attached to it. And here's the problem with that. Almost everybody who might say that or who wouldn't say that has certain categories that people would claim are, are, are love relationships 
that even irreligious people wouldn't endorse. And so, for example, if I were to come up to one of you, uh, uh, you married men in the congregation and say, um, uh, Chris or Bob or Jim or Kevin or Seth, um, I got to tell you, I, I'm a, I really I love your wife. And I wonder if you'd be okay if I have a relationship with her. Now, some of the guys in this congregation are armed. And so I'd really be selective about who I'd approach with something like that. Because if he's armed, it's, it's, it's a good chance he's going to pull his weapon on me, and it, it's not going to go well from there. Even if he's a pacifist, at the very least, he's going to slam his door in my face. Because everybody has loves that they believe that are holy between a husband and a wife and other loves that are not holy, such as me wanting to have a relationship with your wife. What about a a 30-year-old man who says that he loves a 13-year-old boy? Now, even people who are advocates of same-sex relationship, many of them would get very squeamish with that and say, "Mm, no, that's... That's not a a love relationship that I can endorse. What about rape? Now, most people would say there's no love at all involved when it comes to rape. Read 2 Samuel chapter 13, first couple verses. It tells the story about David's son, King David's son, Amnon. And it says in those first few verses that he loved his half-sister, Tamar. And he, in fact, it says he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. He, he wanted her so much. And finally, with a friend, they figured out a scheme to entice him to come to his room and so forth. And he ends up raping her. And then it says, after the deed was done, that he hated her even more than he had loved her before. Now, it's interesting. It's called a love relationship. Everybody, irreligious or not, I think, would say... That's an unholy love relationship. You see, everybody has boundaries. These are love relationships. A mother to her son, a husband to his wife, a dad with a sexual relationship with his daughter. No, no, no. Everybody has boundaries. We have holy loves and we have unholy loves. You see, This is a conviction without corroboration. Can't just say it's all about love. Probably the most um, uh, deeply held conviction without corroboration is that the Old Testament law against homosexuality certainly can't be brought into the New Testament. That's a law we shouldn't recognize because, after all, there are other Old Testament laws that we don't recognize and observe. And so the argument goes like this. Leviticus chapter 18 is full of, you can't do this with this person, sex laws. A dad can't have sex with his daughter, and on and on and on. And a man cannot lie with a man as he would with a woman. And the argument goes like, the conviction goes like this. Well, the very next chapter, Leviticus chapter 19, says that you can't plant two, uh, can't plant two different kinds of seeds in a field. Now, I'm going to go home this afternoon And on my three-mile trip between here and the house, I'm going to see fields in which there's corn. And right next to it, there's alfalfa. Right next to it, there's tobacco. Right next to it, there's wheat. We plant our fields with all kinds of seeds. In that same verse, it also says you can't blend fabrics 
for your clothing. And most of your clothes that you have on today are a blend of something. It's cotton plus something else, nylon, whatever. We don't observe that law. And they're right to point that out. And so the argument goes like this. If we don't observe those laws, why would we observe the commands about no homosexual relationship? Now, the problem with this is anybody who's a serious student of the Bible has to work through questions like, why are there some laws that we don't observe in the Old Testament? And why are are some things new in the New Testament? So, for example, the Old Testament people of God, they worshiped God on the Sabbath, the last day of the week, from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. They couldn't work during those times. Yet we go to the New Testament, and the early church, they're worshiping not on the last day of the week, but the first day of the week. Why the change? Why does it say that you should not work on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, and yet Jesus and sees his disciples walking through fields, plucking heads of grain out and eating food, and the people say, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that. You can't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, well, I'm Lord even of the Sabbath, number one. Number two, uh, man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to serve man. What's going on there? And again, anybody who is a serious Bible student uh, comes to see that there are certain commands that were given in the Old Testament that had a, a shelf life. They're going to come to an end. And there are other commands that are not only not going to come to an end, but are going to be reiterated and repeated in the New Testament. So let me give you a quick overview of this. So three kinds of commands that God gave Israel. He gave them civil commands, he gave them ceremonial commands, and he gave them moral commands. The civil commands had to do with Israel as a nation state under God. They're a theocracy. God rules over them. Even when they had kings like Saul, David, and Solomon, God was ultimately the authority over Israel. And so there were laws that said you need to do that. Just like there are civil laws that we have, you can only go down uh, Route 30 going 35, 40 mile an hour. A civil law says that's the speed limit. You're not allowed to go faster than that. And so there were civil laws given to Israel They say, As a nation state, these are the laws that you are supposed to enforce. And so, for example, let's not hide this. Leviticus chapter 18, it says, If a man does lie with another man, as a man should uh, would with a woman, that he's to be put to death. Now, that law came to an end when Israel came to an end as a nation state, a theocracy under God, depending when you, what point in time you designate that, 586, when uh, Judah went into uh, uh, exile or 400 B.C., uh, 116, depending on your historical marker, doesn't matter all that to say that now there is no application of the civil laws that were given to Israel. Laws, the civil laws finished. They came to an end. Now, the ceremonial laws were finished also, but Jesus describes their end differently. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law, but I have come to, does anybody know what he says? Fulfill the law. In other words, uh, my father gave the laws to Israel 1,500 years ago so that he could teach them to distinguish between the clean and the unclean, between right and wrong, between the holy and the unholy. And so, for example, when they built the tabernacle and uh, all the furniture in it, Before they put the furniture in the tabernacle, they sprinkled blood all over it. That was a ceremonial or a ritual law. Everything has to be cleansed with blood. Because I'm teaching you, I'm teaching you that blood takes care of sin. 
so that when Jesus comes on the scene, you go, oh, my parents and grandparents always had to take sacrifices down to the temple for the payment for their sin. But Jesus says, Hebrews, the uh, book of Hebrews said it over and over again, that Jesus paid the price for sin once and for all. And so people would have, they'd sit in the Old Testament, they'd bring a goat down to the temple to be offered as a sacrifice for their sin. All of that went away after Jesus goes to the cross. You can look at many, many um, laws that were given to Israel. Uh, the, the men, you're not supposed to clip the corners of your beards, the certain tassels around the uh, hem of your garment, and on and on. All of these things, ceremonial laws, ritual laws designed to teach people and prepare them for the coming of the Messiah who would fulfill all those laws. So when we look at the Old Testament, civil laws, ceremonial laws are done, but there are moral laws that were to uh, last for all time. And so when God says, you shall not murder in the Old Testament, we get to the New Testament, and it also says, you don't murder. The Old Testament says, you don't steal. The New Testament also says, you don't steal. In almost every case, these laws are repeated when we get to the New Testament, if they are moral in nature. And yes, one of them is, man shall not lie with a man as he does with a woman, and a woman shall not lie with a woman. Now, before I touch on that just a little bit more, let's talk about the idea of marriage, and can marriage be elastic enough to include a man and a man, or a woman and a woman? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when God created humanity, he says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, Male and female, he created them. Now, it doesn't specifically say here that marriage is only for a man and a woman, but he's very clearly differentiating between the sexes, between the genders. Now, let me take you to Romans chapter 1, which is probably the most important passage. If you have a Bible along, I'd encourage you to look at it rather than just at the screen. Romans chapter 1. And... um, Starting in verse 18, Paul begins to describe, he begins with a short biography of humanity's uh, flight from God. Sin, 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 idolatry, idolatry, idolatry. And it got so bad, Paul says that in verse 24, he says, So, as a result of this, therefore, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desire. Kevin DeYoung points out in his book on homosexuality, one of the worst things that God can do is to leave us to our own devices, leave us to indulge ourselves um, without border to our own desires. He says, as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. And so they worshiped and served the things that God created instead of the creator himself, uh, such as the human body. Worshipped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men and as a result of the sin they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Now, some of the arguments that are made by the um, defenders of same-sex relationship is that Paul was not speaking about uh, 
committed monogamous same-sex relationships, but rather he's speaking about when uh, older men would have sexual relations with younger boys, pederasty, or that it's somehow in the context of having sex with temple prostitutes, uh, male prostitutes, and so forth. Uh, It's pretty tough to make that case here. There is a word for pederasty. For example, Paul chose not to use it. But to me, the most compelling um, force of this text is all of your Bibles say, in verses 26 and 27, they say they use the terms men and women, even though that's not the word, those are not the words used in Greek. You know what's used? Male and female. Males and females. So 26 actually reads, um, even the females turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the males, instead of having normal sexual relations with uh, females, burned with lust for each other. Males did shameful things with other males and as a result of this sin and so forth and so on. In other words, Paul was deliberately reaching back to Genesis and grabbing the language of creation male and female, and imposing it here and saying, this is not what God intended. And because humanity had rebelled so ferociously and deliberately against God, God released them, turned them over to indulge in their desires. The last conviction without corroboration I want to touch on is that the argument that many have made that it's true, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. You look through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he never did. Except when he addressed marriage. Matthew 19, he's asked about divorce. and the first five verses there, he says, he reaches back to Genesis 2.24 and says, A man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But I get it. He didn't explicitly mention anything about homosexuality. Unless you take into consideration the fact that his father already did And does he need to repeat everything that his father did? This is one of the reasons that we can't slice off the Old Testament from the New. There's so much that God has said explicitly in the Old Testament that no one felt the need to repeat in the New Testament. So, for example, um, Jesus never mentioned anything about rape. We talked about that. Never mentioned anything about rape. But everyone would agree that that's a moral command against it. Never mentioned, Jesus never mentioned anything about kidnapping, but everyone would agree that was a moral command not to do. In fact, Jesus never mentioned anything about <clears throat> if one of you has a neighbor whose life is threatened, you better get involved. That command comes right before the commands don't sow at two kinds of seed in a field, right before don't blend fabrics for your clothing, which were ritual ceremonial laws. And yet Jesus never repeated it. And so I would argue anything that Jesus' father said in the Old Testament didn't need to be repeated. Remember John 10.30? Jesus says, I and the Father are one. All right, I am out of time, and I still have like 15 minutes to go. Okay. So i got to give you some gospel. That's kind of my Bible background to address some of the, um, the naysaying that God really is, he's okay with same-sex relationships. So here's some gospel clarifications. And this is important. These things are important, especially for those of us who don't struggle with same-sex relationships. You and I, all of us, we are sinners, period. (laughs) 
I didn't expect to get an amen, but it would have been great. (laughs) All of us are sinners, period. All right. And all of us are made in the image of God, heterosexual and homosexual alike. All right, there we go. Secondly, sin is sin. And indulging in any sin condemns. Whether that's our pride, our theft, our heterosexual acts outside of marriage, our failure to love other Christians, our cursing our brother or sister, and homosexual acts, all of these are damnable. But also all are forgivable. And all are able to have, we are able to have victory over. First uh, Corinthians. Again, I, I'm encouraging you to look at your Bible. I just think it's, it's even more powerful when we look at our own Bibles that hopefully we're going to be reading tomorrow morning. Just be reminded, hey, the same thing that goes up on the screen, I got in front of me. So First Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, says this. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's not talking about the fact that we sin some, we stumble into sin, but rather just like 1 John says, if, this is, if we continue to practice sin, indulging in our sin habits, uh, that reveals uh, a lie when we say that we are a follower of Jesus Christ. So don't you realize that those who do, would, uh, who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or are thieves, or are greedy people, or drunkards, or are abusive, or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And then you just kind of, just kind of takes the wind out of your sails to read that until you get to the next verse. Some of you Christians were once like that. Some of you Christians were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling. How were you made right with God? By calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You flung yourself on him, having no hope in and of yourself. And the next line says, and you then get the power to defeat those sin areas in your life. And by the Spirit of our God. You see, no one goes to hell because of same-sex attraction. Tim Keller had a great line about this with an interviewer one day. He didn't put it quite like this, but I'll put it like this. No one goes to hell because of same-sex attraction, just like nobody goes to heaven because they have opposite-sex attraction. And the last gospel clarification I want to make is that the gospel leads believers who are not same-sex attracted to love their gay neighbors. In my case, that's literal. But for all of us, to love those who struggle with same-sex attraction. This is where some people get into the, uh, get to the idea, well, if I love somebody, I, I endorse everything about them. Really? The Bible says that Jesus, <clears throat> that uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commended his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So does God endorse everything about us while he loved us? No. But he loved us. 
Now, some words of application here. First of all, what about if you are a person that's same-sex attraction? What are your options? Well, one is to indulge in what you desire, what you long for. Now, here's a question I have for you. What if your longings, or if you are actively engaged in a same-sex relationship, what if your sexual encounters don't tell you the truth? And what I mean by that is things like this, that they tell you, without it, you're worth nothing. Or they tell you that this is who you are. This is, this is your identity. This is who you are meant to be. Or they tell you, without this, you will never be satisfied. What if you get down the road 30 years and find out that even with it, you're not satisfied? Or if these longings tell you, after all, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be fulfilled. And the converse of that is that he never wants you to suffer. By the way, you just can't. That doesn't have any legs if you read the entire Bible. In fact, the people who have served God the most diligently often have suffered the most ferociously. What if your longings don't tell you the truth? And what if Jesus Christ does tell you the truth? What if he says, you come to me and you will eventually discover that I have the most abundant life you could ever have, John 10.10? What if he tells you the truth? That if you come to him with your burdens that he will relieve you of them and you will find out that the burden that he gives you, you will be light in comparison. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. What if he tells you that you should come to him if you want hope, that you should come to him if you want something that's more valuable than the money you have in your bank or your stock portfolio? What if he tells you that he is better for you than any job, that he will be better for you and better to you than any man or woman would be? That if he tells you I'm joy and I'm power and I'm victory and I'm eternal life and I'm forgiveness, that that's all true. What if the other things you're being told aren't true and what if these things are? And he simply has his arms open to you saying, come to me. And you might ask, well, what if I do put my trust in Christ to forgive me and I mess up again? Let me tell you this. You will. You will. All of us do. You don't come to Jesus promising that you will never, ever sin again. You come to Jesus saying, by your help, Holy Spirit, by your help, I will fight my sin forever until you take me home. Because you now have the power to fight it with the spirit and the second thing i would say is invite the church to help you in that fight we have 12 secondary positions here in a church at keystone about a variety of things from abortion to politics within the church to um, security of the believer to baptism and same-sex relationships and this is what we say we denounce as unloving the all too common practice of ridiculing those struggling with same-sex attractions yes homosexual acts are sinful But the person saying no to his homosexual desires is no different from the person saying no to his sinful heterosexual desires. Temptation is only the enticement to sin. It's not sin. And consequently, a Christian victoriously struggling with homosexual desires is just as welcome to become a member or serve in ministry at Keystone as someone struggling with wrong heterosexual desires. 
However, homosexual tendencies will be properly considered in deciding who the individual can and can't minister to. And one of the things that we have to appreciate and understand, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus doesn't turn homosexuals into heterosexuals. He turns sinners into his servants. He turns sinners into the servants. The goal is not for people to struggle with same-sex attraction, to suddenly develop heterosexual attractions. It is to turn people from sin to servants of Jesus Christ. And some final comments, oh man, um, to heterosexual Christians, starting with parents. What is it that concerns you most about your kids? Ed Shaw in his book, and Ed Shaw is a pastor who struggles with same-sex attraction. In his book, Same-Sex Attraction in the Church, The Surprising Plausibility of This Celibate Life, he says, you wouldn't believe how many times I've had parents come up to me and say, how can I make sure my kid doesn't turn out homosexual? And he's like, shouldn't your goal be rather to see that your child grows up to love and serve Jesus Christ? No matter what they struggle with? Because whether they're same-sex attracted or not, they're going to struggle with some sin area and some sin areas in their lives. What's your goal for your child? And then secondly, for us who are heterosexual followers of Jesus, I dream of a day when our church will be known as a place where someone can share with their care group, I struggle with same-sex attraction. Would you pray with me? Would you walk that journey with me? rather than being terrified of saying something like that because of how people will think about them, talk about them, talk to them. I dream of a day where that's the kind of atmosphere that we have in this church. How would you respond if somebody said that in your care group? And I dream of a day when our words and our deeds as followers of Jesus Christ who are heterosexuals have been so regularly kind that gay people grasp that when what Christians believe is because they worship God, not because they hate gay people. Yes, Jesus Christ does love gay people. Do his followers. And that's it. Question to leave us, Lord. To leave with me and for all of us. Do we love Gay people, the people who have been made and shaped in your image. And we pray, Father, for a heart, for that heart, that we would be broken over our sin and the world's sin and love the sinners of the world just like you loved a sinner like me. Glorify yourself, Lord, in our love, in our concern and care for our broken world. In Jesus' name. Amen.